Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banter Podcast, where birders talk birding. Well, after doing two solo episodes of the Bird Banter Podcast while I was on my Great River Road driving trip up the Mississippi Flyway, it's really good to be home. And to have guests on for a change, I've been hoping to have Charlie Wright and Jackie Lindsay on the podcast for a long time. They are from an organization called COAST, with two S's, C-O-A-S-S-T. We'll get to that later. But COAST has been a program that monitors dead birds found on the beaches of Washington and Oregon and Northern California and Alaska for 23 years, uh, and keeping surveys of what birds have found, how often, and have a terrific database of that. Well, stay tuned, and I think you'll really have fun learning about COAST and the things they do. But before we get on with this discussion, I want to digress to some local fun birding experiences I've had just in the last few days. The day before we talked on the podcast, I was able to get out with my guest on this episode, Charlie Wright. Will Brooks, another guest on an earlier episode, and I went trying for owls and scouting for an upcoming Pierce County Big Day, and Charlie joined us at daybreak. Charlie and Will are just both fabulously skilled birders, and the day proved to be pretty special from a birding standpoint. Shortly after Charlie came on the, on the scene, he spotted a bird that he most wanted to find on this trip, a gray flycatcher, foraging in a clear cut. Will has been really exploring the birding possibilities in this area for the last couple of years and has found several gray flycatchers, the first time the species have been found in Pierce County, all in an area that we have been calling the Highway 410 clear cuts. Well, more on that in a minute. All of them have also been in the early May time frame, not dissimilar uh, to an area in Skagit County, Upper Skagit River Valley. Well, while we're on this trip, Charlie and, and Will got to talking, and they, they decided they're going to start calling this the Upper White River Valley. That's a little more sexy name than the Highway 410 Clearcuts, hoping that more birders will join this area. It's sort of half a joke, but I think it makes sense. Anyway, the gray flycatcher was the 299th species found in Pierce County by Charlie. He's by far the leading uh, Bird of the birder has listed the most species in Pierce County. Although although Charlie doesn't really keep count of numbers like that, the rest of us do. Then an hour or so later, Will spotted a small sparrow in a different area that turned out to be a grasshopper sparrow. Will had the chance to work do field work at JBLM Joint Base Lewis McCord last summer, where a small population of grasshopper sparrows breed. But this is in a restricted area, completely inaccessible to most birders. So just like that. Charlie, the birder with the most species found by any individual in Pierce County, picked up his 299th and 300th lifer in Pierce County. Pretty cool. Uh, and just the fact that I was out with two fabulous birders that I got a chance to see them too. It's unlikely I'd have found either bird by myself. Maybe the gray flycatcher, but certainly, almost certainly not the grasshopper sparrow. Anyway, uh, that made Charlie the first birder to get 300 species in Pierce County. Well, finding 300 species in a, in a county in Washington is no small task. Uh, on review of both eBird and Washington Birder, uh, the site that keeps track of uh, lists, uh, Charlie's 300th makes Pierce just the 10th out of 39 counties in Washington with at least one birder having a life list of 300. Uh, and for, for comparison, only four counties have more than two birders with a list of 300. So congratulations to Charlie and to Pierce County birders on this accomplishment. So, with that aside, uh, help me welcome Jackie Lindsay and Charlie Wright to the Bird Banner Podcast, episode number 129. Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. I have Charlie Wright and Jackie Lindsay here with me. Uh, welcome. 
Thanks, Ed. It's great to be here. Thanks, Ed. Glad to be back. I've known about COAST for a while. COAST uh, is, Jackie, tell me what COAST stands for. Yes, the first test. Uh, we are the Coastal Observation and Seabird Survey Team. So that's COAST with two S's. Not a mistake, just a clever uh, acronym on our part. And, and we're a citizen science program that's based in Washington State. And we are also in Alaska, California, uh, and Oregon as well. So give me a little background. Tell me the story of uh, Coast, Jackie. How did it come about? And it's a, obviously a pretty big program now and started out with pretty small roots. It, yeah, it is. We, our roots are uh, inspiration that happened in the late 90s by our executive director, Dr. Julia Parrish, who is still, still the program director, still based at the University of Washington. But at the time she was studying seabirds on Tatouche. And, and I know that Nia Bay birding is not something that will be unfamiliar to lots of folks listening to the podcast. She was in that great area and she was doing work on, on seabird colony and was realizing that she alone could not co collect all the data that she was ever going to want to know about not only this colony, but also uh, up and down the coastline, all of, all of the birds that she knew were interacting in the marine environment. So she uh, dreamed up a program where citizen scientists would help her collect the data and, and be sort of the eyes and ears in local communities to learn more about how birds are doing in the marine environment. And, and she really, she dreamed this up and thought no one's going to be interested. I'm going to have people collect these uh, data points about dead birds, because that's the most accessible way to learn about birds. And uh, she started with 12 surveyors, I believe, in Ocean Shores. And now we've trained almost 5,000 people in the Coast Survey Program. And so it's not, it's not something that people are shy about. People want to learn about birds in lots of different ways, including by walking lo local beaches and recording information about the dead birds that they come across when they're walking the beach. And that's, it's the perfect niche. We didn't know it was a, a place that we could tap into until, yeah, Julia dreamed up this citizen science program. So it got started in the very late 90s and really got rolling in the early 2000s in Washington State. Very cool. What's not cool about taking a walk on a beach? I mean, really, I mean, you have to force people to walk on a beach once a month? That's the key, I think. People love walking a beach once a month, and that's that's our way in. We we love the beach walkers. They're our people. And me too. Don't have to talk me into walking a beach once a month. <laughs> Sounds pretty cool. And you know, I, I walk on beaches sometimes and come across dead birds. And to me, those carcasses, they are they're just a dead bird most of the time. I don't know what the heck I'm looking at. Charlie, you, your role is as data verifier is what it says on the website. So I'm assuming that that means when somebody comes across a dead bird, you, uh, you make sure they identify it correctly or as correctly as possible. Mm -hmm. uh, how, how did you come to that role? And, and yeah, how does that happen? Yeah, uh, so I came in to Coast quite a while ago now. 2010 is when I started. Um, but I came in with the background, of course, as a birder and really proficient at identifying birds through binoculars. But, you know, day one at Coast, I realized that I needed some different skills, I needed to develop some different skills um, to be the data verifier at Coast because um, we're dealing with birds in various levels of disrepair that, uh, are falling apart on the beach, covered in sand, and 
uh, the things that you rely on as a birder are like, you know, you make snap IDs by the feel of the bird, you know, the, the way it moves, all these sort of shortcuts that we take as birders, those are not helpful at all. <laughs> and in fact, just a, a profile illustration in a field guide is not really helpful. Um, so actually the coast method that Julia sort of struck upon and based our entire field guide, we have a, a field guide that teaches bird ID on the beach, dead bird ID. That is much more similar to the skills that I had to relearn um, as, a, as a new data verifier. And it relies on things that people can collect, not being an expert. You can take measurements, you can answer some simple questions in our field guide and narrow it down to your final species ID. So um, that is the sort of method that that Jackie and Julia and, and Anna is also our, um, our participant coordinator. That's, that's the method that is taught by them in our, in our classes. Very cool. So Charlie, if I come across a carcass and I'm one of your data verifiers and, and what, what do I do? Do I, what do I measure? What do we look at? How do I get, you know, what is, what's that bird? Yeah. Um, so it gets to uh, some, some nitty gritty details, but there's three key parts of a bird, according to our field guide. Um, and that is the foot. And there's a specific you know, way to measure the foot. The wing, that's the bend of the wing to the tip of the primaries, and then the head. But uh, the head includes the bill, that kind of thing, the profile. The most important thing is the feet because that narrows it down to the foot type family. And if, if you ever get your hands on the, on the beach bird field guide, if you don't know that we are really kind of obsessed with bird feet, it will look like the most random field guide you've ever seen because it's, uh, there's no page numbers in the normal way. It's, uh, it's based on the foot type family because it's just a no-brainer. Um, birds separate out by their family, um, just by their shape, the shape of their toes and how many toes there are, whether they're webbed. Um, that really, really helps to narrow it down. So we like, we like our, our seabird feet. That's cool. <laughs> I learned something today and I'm happy about that. That's great. Uh, so uh, how did you become proficient? You obviously read the field guide. What other resources did you use to, to get good at this? So we have a huge catalog of photos. Um, our volunteers have, have taken many thousands of beach bird photos over the years. So we actually have one of the most impressive collections of photos that um, I was able to delve into and, and study. Um, on top of that, I would shout out our local natural history museums, the, the Slater Museum and the Burke Museum. Burke Museum allows me to, to go in and, and actually get hands-on experience with specimens. So that has been key. And the Slater Museum, um, Peter Wimberger and Gary Shugart, they maintain a, an online collection of, of wing photos. Those are really, really helpful. 
um, just the spread wing scans that anybody you can you can check them out too. They're they're really helpful. It is a terrific resource. I had Peter on as a guest uh, previously, and I actually met for that episode in the museum. Uh, oh, excellent! Uh, so I uh, had a chance to. It was too bad it wasn't a video uh, uh, instead of just audio because we talked a lot about wings. It was fun. <laughs> That's Jack. something I was thinking about this one, actually. I, I wish that we could have brought you some wings. and I mean, we can. I'm sure Charlie's sitting next to some, but it won't be something we can share quite as easily as we might normally. <laughs> no, I do, I do put up a blog post for each episode. And so maybe, uh, maybe, maybe we, we can, can share. Uh, do a more extensive blog post than usual. And uh, <laughs> I can uh, uh, put up some wings with Charlie's comments on them. That would be fun. Sure. So Jackie, what do you do when Charlie's not there? He's, I know, Charlie, you do cool stuff. You just get back from being on an Antarctic cruise. You spend time on islands in the, in the Alaskan uh, Gulf of Alaska. You do all kinds of stuff besides sit home by your computer and do this. Do you have a backup or do you wait? Does Charlie's desktop get full when he's away? Yeah, a little of both, really. When Charlie's away, and this is usually during, during summer field season months when he's needed elsewhere for some hands-on live bird work often, we, uh, we are a little bit uh, just sort of on our own for a couple of months, and Charlie is available by email for emergencies. You can't imagine what a dead bird emergency might be, maybe, but we do have them. And sometimes we reach out to him with a question mid-summer field season to say, hey, we're seeing unusual numbers of this kind of bird in this location. Can you take a look and just verify that you agree that we're seeing what we think we're seeing? But the nice thing about working at a university uh, <laughs> where, where we have lots of resources is that although Charlie is far and away the expert at dead bird ID, we cannot compete really any one of us to collectively, we can put our heads together and try and work through what, what Charlie would say if we have a dead bird emergency and he is absent. So there are a number of things that they just wait for him to come back because they can be on the back burner for a couple of months, but there's other things that, that we sometimes all, all put our heads together to come up with an answer in Charlie's absence and it's hard it's hard to be without Charlie, I gotta say. He does have a, a level of expertise from thinking about this stuff all the time that is, is a fantastic resource for the COAST program and for our participants as well, who can reach out to us and say things like, I just saw this, this bird wing that I would have called a, a common murm, but it has this weird feature, what am I seeing? And they can ask those questions to us and to Charlie and get great feedback. Yeah, I bet they do. I can totally believe that about Charlie. I'll, uh... But in there with a with a little anecdote, um, and so I do often come back to to a backlog when I come back from my field seasons. Um, and one particular time, I uh, got back from being in the Bering Strait and seeing thousands of of uh, alcids up there. Least auklets, crested auklets were one of the most common birds I was seeing on a day to day basis. Anyway, came back in September that year, and the first bird in my inbox when I got back um, from here in Westport, Washington, was a least auklet. <laughs> wow. That uh, a volunteer had a question about. So um, this is a, a you know a couple thousand miles out of range, and they'd never been seen in Washington before. So um, tied tied together my two seasons. It was pretty fun. Very nice. Uh, so Jackie, you're, you're in the, you've been in this position for a while. 
Uh, how did how did that come to be? Uh, you told me in the uh, when we talked before that you might not be a, a card carrying member of the birding community. I don't think we have cards, but uh, and it's a pretty inclusive community, I hope. Uh, but uh, tell me your story a little bit. How did you come to this position? And uh, tell me about your you know nature interests and education and just your. Who are you? Who am I? Good question. Yeah, I. I actually would agree that I, I landed here and have stayed here for such a long time because I do find the birding community and the bird research community as well, which I realize overlap and, and are separate as well in some cases, uh, a very welcoming community. And that is not something I can say about all places that I've landed in the science world, but I do find that to be true here. And, and it's the reason that I've been with Coast for, for about five years now is because of that community. But I come from a background of studying uh, marine mammals primarily. And so I, I did actually begin my undergraduate career here at the University of Washington. Um, and I, I did some master's work in California at Moss Landing Marine Laboratories, which was really where I entered into the world of birding. It's right next to uh, an estuary where, where those labs are that are, it's just a, an amazing place to learn to identify birds because it's a migratory pathway. Um, Elkhorn Slough is a place that perhaps many birders uh, visit and I got to learn to identify birds there for the first time. So um, my lab and my, my team members who were birders sort of started inspiring me in that direction. And along around that same time, there was an opening in the Beachcombers Project. Now, Beachcombers is the sister program of Coast that's down in Central California. And it's run by my the director, the PI of my lab in grad school, um, Jim Harvey at the time. So I actually became the Beachcombers Science Coordinator in graduate school uh, at, towards the end of my, my career down there and got to start working with volunteers and identifying dead birds from their photos uh, on beaches, very similar to the work that, that Coast does up in the, the northern regions of the lower 48 and Alaska. So that was my, my way in, I guess. I, I didn't know I was going to be working so much with, with dead marine vertebrates to learn about the marine ecosystem. And I've certainly worked with whales and, and sea otters and elephant seals and things like that as well during my career. But this is kind of an amazing place to have landed. And, and that's why I'm here talking to you today as the co-science coordinator, <laughs> that, that avenue to beached birds. Sounds like a cool way to get into birding, living right near uh, one of the top hotspots on the West Coast. That's nice. Amazing place. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, so you've got a, a bucket load of data. I mean, you guys have been looking at lots and lots of birds over lots and lots of time. What do you do with it? What, what happens with all this information? Yeah. The other cool thing about Coast is that we prefer not to sit on the data set and have it just collect dust. And part of that's because we're a citizen science program. So the people who collect the, the beach bird identities and where they found them and when, um, they want to hear back about what they're finding. They don't want to just have that data go off and sit somewhere for the rest of their lives. So we make sure to do some very informal reporting back to our, we call them coasters, our volunteers, our, our participants on a regular basis. Um, but we also have had the opportunity to document 
some pretty cool patterns in the seasonality of when beach birds come in onto different beaches in different regions and also some mass mortality events that even made headlines in, in different parts of the world uh, at the times when they were occurring, some that are related to really large scale marine processes and others that were very localized events. And we could see those events happening in our data set in a, a quantifiable way just at the same time that people walked out to their beach and said, hey, there's a couple more birds here than usual. We had a, a document of that that allowed us to really track down the causes of those mortality events in a scientific manner. And Jackie, I, I learned from your website that you not, you not only survey marine, marine deaths, you know, birds especially, but other marine mammals and stuff, but you uh, survey junk. I mean, for lack of debris or washed up stuff or whatever you want to call it, marine uh, marine waste. I, I can't remember what the term you used was. Tell me about that. What's that all about? Yeah, marine debris is what we call it pretty frequently in this country, at least. We have a, a Fulbright scholar with us at the moment who keeps calling it rubbish, and I like that better. I think we should be calling it marine rubbish. Maybe we'll have a paper that comes out that has that in the title. But that... Is she from the she, Northeast? I grew up in Maine. We'd call it rubbish. Oh, no, no, she's she's from uh, New Zealand, I believe, originally. Yeah, so it, there's a, an international aspect to this one. Uh, but we have uh, a whole bunch of people working on, on that project as well as our beach bird project. And one of the main reasons for that is because when you're out there walking beaches, looking for beach birds or agates or whatever you happen to be out there doing that day, uh, you can't help but see this global issue right there before your eyes. So when we were looking at, you know, what would be the next great thing to have citizen science help to document in this really standardized way that would allow researchers to pull data out of a data set that's collected by people who care in their communities, uh, popular demand said rubbish. <laughs> let's, let's look at the marine rubbish and see if we can record something meaningful about the trash that we see on our beaches. And so that's the program that we developed about five years ago. And so we've had surveyors surveying beaches since about 2017 for that program and mostly in Washington and Oregon is where we have those, those data collected right now. So those are separate surveyors. You don't have your, the same people looking for bird carcasses and surveying marine rubbish at the same time? In general, yes, they're, they're usually separate people. And it's not necessarily because some are birders and some are really interested in trash. It's, it's usually because there's often too much to do on a single survey. So you choose your preference, your first interest. And for some people, they want to look at a dead bird on a beach really close and learn about it and learn to identify it uh, with Charlie's help often. But for other people, they kind of, they would like to hear about the dead bird patterns of mortality and the marine ecosystem and, and issues that affect their environment, but they don't necessarily want to look at a dead bird up close. And that's okay too. Not everybody needs to look up at a dead bird up close. That's that's for some people. Yeah, you can steer clear and, and keep track of the, the rubbish. That works. Absolutely. You can clean up the beach instead if that's, if that's what you would like to be doing that day. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, so Jackie, I was also surprised to learn that this is not just the open coast. This involves the Salish Sea. So somebody's probably doing uh, rust and away, I'm guessing. I don't know. I mean, there, do you have select places you do or is it any place somebody wants to volunteer, you'll take that information? How does that work? Yeah, uh, to some extent, if you want to survey a beach and you sign up with us, you are welcome to survey that beach as long as you have access to that area in a, a legal, as long as you're not trespassing in some way, you're, you're welcome to go survey that beach. 
the, uh, the caveat I'll say is that the number of birds and the variety of birds that you might see on an outer coast survey is not exactly reflected on the beaches that are really on the inside waters of Puget Sound. And I think that that is sometimes a benefit to people. They sort of want to walk a beach on a monthly basis and, and report in that they're not seeing any birds. And to us, that's important data. So those people are useful for our program because if there were to be, say, 15 cormorants that washed up on a beach in South Puget Sound, we would really, uh, we would know something unusual was going on because we almost never see birds washing up on that stretch of beach. And we have the zero counts to prove it for, for a couple years now, someone's been surveying that beach and they never see a bird. So in some cases you might simply encounter a pocket beach where nobody ever looks and you might notice that birds are there on an occasional basis. And we have, we have people monitoring those beaches in Puget Sound too, so that they can say, yeah, I see one or two beaches around Anacortes that get birds occasionally. So if I were to see one or two birds on those beaches this year, we wouldn't sound alarm bells. Something's happening in Puget Sound. Um, but those Puget Sound surveyors are helpful for, for those alarm systems to be set up. If we, something was going on, we would detect it. And of okay. course, the outer coast surveyors are important as well. So I, a couple of things that you guys might not have the answer to, but you might. Uh, we hear a lot about the blob, you know, the, the giant, uh, sea warming area in the Pacific. Uh, how does, how has that affected the uh, mortality on the Washington beaches? Is, is that uh, an issue? Yeah, the blob is sort of a great name for a phenomenon that, that happened just offshore uh, for us here in Washington and for, for Alaska as well. It was a pretty big blob. The mm -hmm. monster movies that that name evokes is sort of appropriate in the size and scale of that marine water pool. Right. Right. But it's uh, it's not something that's unique to our coastline, in fact, and it's not unique to even the last decade. There are marine heat waves like the blob that have occurred in the past and will occur in the future. And uh, it sounds like there's a pool of hot lava that's entered the middle of the marine ecosystem. It's not quite that dramatic. It's more like there is an increase in the 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 temperature of the water. So all of the critters that live there who are used to it being one way are thrown off when it's a couple degrees warmer than usual. Mm -hmm. And if the water is even just a, a couple of degrees, some critters notice and they might leave or they might not breed or grow as well in that, in that time. And absolutely, when those kinds of things happen, we see it affect the whole marine food chain, including seabirds. So during that really dramatic, uh, the height of the blob years around 2015, we did see a very large mass mortality event of common murders up and down the coastline, especially large in Alaska. And it was fully documented by coasters, but by a lot of other, other folks who were out there doing research on this, this large event at that time. And, and we have sort of worked down the, the pathway of what might've happened exactly to cause those seabirds deaths. And there is, if you wanna go visit the coast website, a couple of interesting ways to explore that story, even if you don't wanna read an academic paper, which I totally understand. We've got a couple other ways too, to read that story as well. Um, so yes, it's absolutely something that affects the marine, the marine ecosystem. And it's one of the things we keep an eye out for those changes in, in sea surface temperature. Jackie, so you rely a lot on volunteers for uh, for your data collection. Uh, how does somebody, uh, you know, who are you looking for? What's the commitment? What's the training like? How does that all go? 
Yeah, great question. We do, we're entirely volunteer-based. So uh, with, with only a couple of exceptions where folks survey part of the year when they're seasonal staff in a national park, for example, all of our reports come from surveyors who are just walking a local beach and reporting in when they do so. So that's really the time commitment. We ask that folks in our program go out about once a month for at least a year, but hopefully for a little longer to the same beach at the same time of the month. And they walk an assigned stretch that they've adopted looking for either, either beach birds or marine debris if they've signed up for that, uh, for the trash surveys. So those volunteers are also expected to have attended a training with us before they get started. And that training lasts five to maybe six hours if everyone's really, really chatty, which sometimes we are. We all get in a room together in person, if at all possible. And it's, it's more and more possible again this year. And we travel with a collection of dead bird body parts. And that might sound weird, but we have a couple of freezers downstairs in the lab where Charlie's sitting right now. And it's full of wings that have been preserved and sort of extended in a way that you can practice measuring them and see identifiable features and feet as well. Charlie mentioned, we're all about the feet of the birds and we have examples of all of the different bird species and foot type families so that the people who come to our trainings can become experienced participants in the program before they even leave the room. So we spend a couple of hours going through the guide, working and practicing with the key so that we can sort of get on the same page about terms and practices. We call it putting on your coast hat. You know, if you're a birder and you go and look at a bird, you might have to put on your coast hat to be able to identify it using our bird guide, because we do, we ask you to count toes before you look at the color of the toes. And that might not be what you're used to doing. If you're looking at a, a beautifully colored, red foot on a pigeon guillemot, you might jump to a conclusion. Sure. So that's the practice that we help our participants um, go through. And then we set them free on the beach. So they choose a local beach that hopefully has meaning to them. They want to return there month after month and they, they get to work surveying and they report in every month once they've done their survey with what they found. Do you have subs? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. In some cases, it seems like it'd be helpful. Huh? <laughs> Somebody could yeah. volunteer as a substitute. You know, say, "Oh well, you know, so and so is going to be on, on away this summer and can't do it. Uh, I could cover the ocean shores from the jetty to whatever." Yeah, right? yeah, we do. We have those surveyors who even take turns. In some cases, maybe they only want to commit to every other month, but they have a survey team that they work with to sort of trade off coverage. So. In some cases, we have a survey team of five or six people who sort of work together to cover a beach. And in other cases, we have a surveyor who really has tight ownership with their beach. They are there every single month. But, you know, it's Thanksgiving. They want to travel. They'll send an email out to our local listserv and say, is anybody willing? Agate Beach is beautiful. Was anybody willing to come and walk Agate Beach for me once this year? And a lot of times a, a local surveyor, especially in those communities where coasters have been for a long time, is more than willing to take an extra beach walk that month to get that coverage. How are you doing for volunteers for this for the bird part of this? Are you actively recruiting a, a desperate or are you pretty flush or what's the situation? Yeah, I mean, the truth is we're almost always actively recruiting. And that's simply because there's a lot of coastline and a lot of folks join our program, not for the rest of their lives, but for one or two years where they're, you know, in the area or really interested in this project. And 
naturally people move in and out of different places. So we do have some surveyors who've been surveying for nearly a decade. They are fantastic humans, but they are not the norm. There are other people who might only survey for one or two years. So we're always looking for somebody new to get trained in an area and be able to step in as a substitute or even to take on their own beach. And I would say at the moment, if, if anybody wanted to walk a beautiful outer coast beach at the moment, we would be super excited to have them do that, especially in, in Washington and Oregon, because we do have a lot of places that we haven't been able to visit in the last two years to do trainings. And there are lots and lots of spots that are simply gorgeous stretches of coastline that I would love to walk if I lived nearby and they could use a, a surveyor right now. So yeah, we are actively recruiting and would love to have anybody who's listening and curious come and check us out. I saw that the, the way to contact you is on your website. I'll make sure I put a, a link to that, both in the blog post and the podcast notes to, to uh, the page on the website to sign up for. So if anyone's interested, they can join the, uh, the, cool, the cool people who are surveying code. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Charlie, do you have any other uh, uh, kind of cool anecdotes? You told me about the, uh, the, the auklet that you found after you got back from Alaska. Have there been any other sort of... Uh, kind of strange things that have been found or in really interesting stuff? Ooh, uh, yeah. Birders, your listeners uh, are always interested in the rare birds, I think. So I'm, I'm sort of the same way. I, I have that bent. Um, so kind of along the same lines of the, of the least auklet, I, uh, I thought of the two of the fantastic humans that Jackie mentioned who are some of our best participants were doing a beach, sur beach bird survey out at Hoback, which is one of our longest running study sites out there at Nia Bay. And uh, they found this single wing a couple of years ago. And, you know, these are veteran surveyors. They, they know their common birds and they did not recognize this one. They took really good photos of it and documented it, you know, in different lighting, but all they could write down on their, on their slate, their label for the photo was unknown. <laughs> and some, <laughs> some comments that sort of looked like a Stellar's J, but uh, not quite right. It was shimmery and bluish purple. And so I, uh, you know, down the line, run into the survey and see that bird and recognize the shape of it as looking like a rail, um, something in the rail family. And lo and behold, it turned out to be a purple gallinule wing on Hoback Beach. Um, and as we know, all rare birds end up in Nia Bay at some point. So just another in that story, uh, in, in that line, but a purple gallinule was the first, the first record for anywhere in this area on the West Coast. Um, so these sorts of discoveries are really only possible with lots and lots of eyes. Like there, there are not enough people out there who would recognize a purple gallinule wing. Um, so being able to compile, aggregate large amounts of data in one area um, it's really powerful and it's also useful not only for finding these off the wall things, but you know, you can track range expansions. We're seeing more and more boobies in, in our coast program, um, marching north with the warm water and 
tracking all of these ecological things, as well as our main purpose is, is that mortality baseline that Jackie talked about, um, figuring out what's normally happening out um, in the ecosystem. So, Yeah, I, I think a lot of birders think, and I, I certainly seem to feel like over the, the quite a few years I've been around Washington, that there are just less birds around. I mean, there's less of almost every kind of bird, maybe not crows, but almost every kind of bird. Uh, and uh, I know that there have been some issues with food supply in the, in the sound and probably in the ocean too, uh, and decreased populations of a lot of species. Uh, have you, how, how does that correlate with carcasses? I mean, you'd think less birds, less car less live birds, less dead birds, but uh, maybe more toxic environment, more dead birds. What do you, how do you think that correlates? That's, that's a really um, good observation that there's, there's a lot at play with um, sort of natural history of, of dead birds. Um, and there's always a story and just sussing it out is, is kind of our, our job. It's kind of a, a classic ecological question of uh, you know, most of the birds in our program died of natural causes. They, they starved to death. Um, but why? That's that's the the question that we're always trying to get at, and that's why we need so much data. You know, we don't do CSI on individual carcasses, and we generally, unless there's the rare entanglement um, in fishing gear or something, we don't know what led to an individual bird's death. But through aggregating all of uh, everybody's data we can tell the story of, of, of what's going on. And we also know what to expect at certain times of the year, the post-breeding time um, with locally breeding birds, like myrrh is our classic post-breeding bird that, that dies off consistently, um, July and August around here. We know to expect a lot of chicks at that time of year and actually seeing a lot of chicks on the beach at that time of year, at the right time of year, is a good thing. We've, um, we sort of celebrate, um, as, as perverse as that sounds, um, a lot of chicks showing up on the beach it means there's a lot of chicks out there in the environment for the first time and they're struggling, um, but some of them inevitably survive. So that's a good thing. Um, becomes, you know, we've seen um, with, the blob with warm water, we are seeing more wrecks, um, larger wrecks, more of them, and they're marching north. So uh, a wreck is a massive mortality event. The Cassin's Auklet comes to mind um, from like 2013, 14, um, 14, 15, maybe. And uh, so our volunteers experience that firsthand. Um, a lot of Cassin's Auklets washing up on the beach. But um, from that, we learned a lot. And we told that story through academic papers and everything. But there's also some other um, visuals that, that Jackie referenced on our website. So we're lucky in Washington to have not just coast and no, we don't have coast. We're we have part of coast, I guess, in Washington. Uh, but we also have Westport Seabirds, which is a fabulous uh, uh, data gathering uh, operation. They've been, they're the longest standing, uh, regularly 
regularly going to see pelagic uh, tour group in the world and they've been keeping excellent records from the very beginning so we have extensive a whole lot of data about what's being seen at different times of year over the decades uh, offshore in washington uh even though it's maybe only one or two days a month there's still a lot of data does that correlate uh, the, the numbers of birds around correlate with the number of dead birds pretty well or is, do, do you have a feel for that 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 makes me think of the Cassins event that we that we witnessed in our program, um, and I believe in our in our paper, the academic paper, we cite um, Westport Seabirds numbers. So we actually directly did use those data um, as part of how we know that there were more Cassins offlets near shore that year than usual, and it really helped us tell the story of of how um, this marine heat wave affected these birds. It contracted their habitat essentially to the near shore environment. And then once they had to migrate, um, they were stranded essentially, you know, thousand miles to the nearest good foraging grounds. So mm. that was, uh, Westport Seabirds was a, a really good way to know what was going on. Long-term monitoring of seabirds at sea is a really rare thing. It's a hard thing to accomplish. And uh, Westport Seabirds is some of the best that we have going back to 1971. So That's really cool. So Jackie, besides volunteers, uh, Coast has to have money somehow. I mean, you have employees and costs and that sort of thing. How is Coast funded? Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and it's it's one that I occasionally get at a training too, because we are associated with the University of Washington, and sometimes folks assume that we are funded by the University of Washington to to operate like this, and that would be fantastic. But it's not actually how how it works. You're right. We we are often uh, funded by the people who care about the data and the analyses that we are producing. So, for example, there are people who are state and federal organizations who want to know about the status of marine birds on beaches and uh, have recognized over the years that in a year, say there's a pandemic and no one can go out for their field season in the middle of the summer. Uh, the only people who can collect data on ecological monitoring are the people who live locally in these areas and can simply walk out to the beach and report on what they see. And the value of citizen science at that level is, is occasionally funded by, by folks who are looking for that data in order to make management decisions and tell stories about mass mortality event, uh, events that, that again have direct impacts on, on, on the lives of people in marine communities. So, so I, I'm not naming individual places because there are in fact so many programs that contribute to our organization and have done so over the years, but fish and wildlife programs, NOAA programs have contributed as have other small funding agencies. And the Packard Foundation gave us some of our very first uh, startup funds when Julia was starting the program in the nineties. They saw a future in beached bird citizen science monitoring and allowed for the program itself to be developed over a few years and piloted and tested in ocean shores. I'm going to just uh, give a, an opportunity for either of you to add anything you want to say about the Coast program or related uh, things. Do you have any, uh, any things that I haven't brought up that you think would be important that people might want to hear? 
Well, I think there's a really cool story that we don't really we don't really need to tell in detail here, but it's something you'll learn if you start getting into the COAST program. And that story is something that Charlie referenced when he was speaking, which is sort of the natural history of dead birds themselves. So when we're thinking about the birds that you see out at sea, if you're on if you're on a boat traveling around, um, if those birds happen to die off way offshore, the likelihood of them washing up directly on their beaches isn't really that great. There have to be a number of coincidences, essentially, all lining up in order for a bird to both die offshore and then also wash in to be found on one of our beaches. So some of the stories that we can tell uh, really are directly related to how birds are behaving just before they've died, because that, that part of the story is captured in the fact that they ended up on our beaches instead of just sinking out at sea, which is what happens to most birds that die off out at sea. Mm -hmm. So that story is something that's one of the examples of the things that coast participants get connected to when they start walking their beach with the, the coast hat on, when they're thinking about the likelihood of finding a bird on the beach and when they get used to seeing their beach month after month, they start noticing things that they wouldn't necessarily have noticed in any other circumstance because they're looking at the world in sort of a new way. And that's a cool thing that I think that the program offers that you might not expect if you, if you go in learning hoping to learn about uh, identifying dead birds on the beach, which is one of the things that drew me. So yeah, there's there's lots of new experiences out there that you might not anticipate if you start walking beaches and doing doing a survey for whatever it might be out there. And coast is one of those options, but I say walk a beach, that's my takeaway. Sounds like good <laughs> advice for anyone, anytime, I think. Good. Well, guys, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. As I said, I'll write a blog post that uh, talks a little more about some details and I'll put contact information in the podcast uh, notes. But I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. And you guys have a great day. Thanks now. Thanks so much, Ed. It was great talking to you. Great. Thanks, Ed. Well, thanks for listening. That wraps up the Bird Banner podcast, episode number 129 with Jackie Lindsay and Charlie Wright. Coast is a, a really fine program, a, a great example of citizen science, and it makes me consider becoming a coaster for them. I could become one of the cool people if I do that. Anyway, for anyone interested, I put the link to the Coast website in the podcast notes and also in the blog post that is, goes along with this episode on birdbanner.com in the blog section. Uh, I've also got some photos from Charlie of both the uh, least Auckland and the Purple Gallinal Wing, and, and I'll try to put up some uh, examples of the three types of feet of different birds uh, that wash up on shore. So if you're interested, check that out. Thanks for listening. Good birding and good day.